Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is season two, episode number 33, and once again, we are going to rewind the tapes and give you some of the best highlights and expert insights from the past two seasons on the podcast. Today in part one of Rewind, you're going to hear some great clips all about training and athlete training, sprints for injury prevention, as well as hit and heart health from such experts as renowned strength coach Clance Layler, sprint coach Derek Hansen, and hit expert Dr. Martin Kabala. In part two, Dr. Andy Galpin will discuss muscle fiber types, the common myths and misconceptions, and how this relates back to your training. As well as Mr. Dan Party will talk about circadian biology and how this has a deep impact on your health and performance. Finally, in part three, we'll round things out by talking about the brain, its essential role in health, performance, and recovery with expert physiologist and psychologist, Dr. John Sullivan, before finally wrapping things up with the mindset and traits of elite captains with author of the Captain Class and founding editor of the Wall Street Journal Sports Section, Mr. Sam Walker. Tons of great insights here from this incredible group of experts. Uh, of course, feel free to circle back to hear the complete episodes. We've got those at drbubs.com forward slash podcast on the page that hosts this episode. Are you a new listener? If you are, thanks for joining in. You're in for a treat today. This is a really great episode. Uh, and for the hardcores listening week to week, love it. Really appreciate the support and uh, keep sharing on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And if you haven't subscribed yet, shame on you. Just, just kidding. Uh, but really, you know, head over to YouTube and subscribe or iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, whatever you prefer to podcast with. All right, let's get things rolling. Season two, episode 33. Let's rewind the tapes. I found that everything starts with a muscle snatch. It's, a, it's amazing. Like the, the tool is the overhead squat. Everybody's familiar with the overhead squat. I've just taken another step doing the muscle snatch because the ro- work in the ro- rotator cuffs, you see all these guys uh, all internally rotated, playing Xbox all day, uh, not, <laughs> do, sure. no, not doing any posture or chain work. So what I've done is included the muscle snatch, which works the external rotators then they have to fix the bar overhead which has to activate the stabilizers so hold the bar overhead and stretch the tissues in the subscapular rotator cuff and so on to hold that bar overhead and then with that bar overhead they have to do a squat right so what we do is we just slowly work that range of motion within their limitation uh slowly and we progressively load i've had basketball players come in tight as a guitar string by the time they're there I, I mean literally can't even put a, a dowel a, 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 a pvc pipe over their head yeah that sounds about right <laughs> that, that's like literally and cannot sit in a they can't even do a go to a parallel squat their ankles are so tight you know they they can't even get their knee over their toes so we have to use a wedge board to, to get the pattern going and open it up. So it's it's work. It's and that's why we I do that exercise every day. Muscle snatch overhead squat every day. 
repetition is the mother of all learning. To get the tissues to work, you have to repeat it over and over. And we have such a little small time with these athletes. And that's a stand that I've used. And I've I use muscle snatch to overhead squat as a as a as a mobility uh, tool, and I, and we do it every day before they start training. So the progressions will start with a PVC pipe stick, uh, wedge board under heels, trying to achieve the correct positions, and we just slowly work it day by day until we until they hit, achieve the right positions. And uh, some basketball players are just amazed. You'll just turn around one day, wow, they're sitting in the full squat. Bang, they're hit, they're, the bar's in the right slot. Bang, 40 kilos overhead. Um, shoulder girdle is nice and tight, stabilized, locking up. Upper back strong, lower back strong, you know. So it, it's huge, huge. We have a structural balance phase. We they come in, they get tested. We see what's going on, the weak areas. Check their body fat. Get the supplementation going. Get the nutrition going. Um, uh, get the structural balance program going. A lot of dumbbell exercise. No barbell work uh, other than muscle snatch overhead squat. Yes, we do Olympic lifts right away, and yes, we squat right away. But that's more for technique, opening them up, um, being on the ice or on the field. Um, open them up, just lightweight, getting the movements right, but a lot of unilateral work with dumbbells and so on and so forth. After the three or four weeks, we move into our phase one of AAS. AAS, usually, depending on what the athlete needs, we are working with uh, 10 rep cycle, six rep cycle, uh, three rep cycle, just to give you an idea. So Monday for our acceleration work, after they lift, we, we, they take about a half an hour break and we do sprint work. Half an hour to an hour. Our sprint work, um, one of my favorites is uh, acceleration. We do 10s, 20s, and 30s. So we'll start off with a cycle of 10s, move out to 20s and 30s. Obviously, we want to tone the hamstrings and get them ready to let the hamstrings know, hey, we're doing maximal work. And we're, we, we gradually start moving, moving out the distance um, week by a um, couple weeks at a time, three weeks at a time, and so on and so forth, till we're doing full out maximal 60s. And usually, my maximal 60 work, I'm uh, not usually, maximal 60 meter work is on Monday. So the speed work looks like this Monday is uh, maximal speed work, uh, Tuesday is speed endurance, and Friday is special endurance. Strongman is on Wednesday, and that's how. I, and then we get in some extra work on Saturday, which is hills. Though they do that on their own. Sometimes I'll go, I'll go with the guys, and they'll do some hill work. So the guys are in tremendous condition. One thing that we do um, is we do maximal acceleration work, loaded and unloaded, which is a contrast method. Method three times a week that we it does i don't care how tired you are and how you feel how sore you are so and i find that transfer is huge what we do vary is the 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 higher the further the distance the lower the intensities because obviously as soon as you get out of the drive phase the horizontal phase you get into the vertical phase that you have a higher risk of hamstring pulls tears and so on and so forth so but Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, and Friday are max um, effort work with short distances. Mondays, the rest periods are longer because I'm looking for p 
pure quality work with hypnosis. Tuesdays, the rest periods are shorter because I'm trying to get some endurance work in there. So I shorten the endurance work. And then on Fridays is special endurance. So I basically just smashing them, getting, getting some good conditioning work, more mileage and so on and so forth. So that's kind of how it looks. And this is all after they finish their lifting. They lift first, they sprint. Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting that if you look at the data of some of the top performers and things like stride frequency, stride length, uh, ground contact time, for the most part, the only thing that stays pretty constant, and, and some people get this wrong too, is is stride frequency, and it's usually about four to five se- strides per second. So that's pretty constant, and I'll watch my kids run. You know, and you do the calculation in your head. I'm I'm not so obsessive that I'm like filming them and breaking down their stride frequency, <laughs> nice. but but you kind of see like okay, they're turning over about the same frequency as as an elite performer. The only difference is they're not putting as much force into the ground, and so the stride length is significantly shorter. Um, but when you look at stride length and you look at um, what's happening on the ground, every step gets a little more forceful and the ground contact time gets shorter and a lot of the time it happens in pairs so you'll see two strides are the same then the next two are different than the next two obviously you got two legs and you know it works that way but uh, the fact that you can have a ground contact time i think uh, at block clearance it could be as high as you know three tenths of a second and then at the faster end you're below a tenth of a second you know that's a pretty broad array of of, of things that are happening and and you know what's happening in the lower lower chain in terms of knee flexion and heel recovery and 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 what muscles are involved i think that's pretty interesting and from a re if we go back to the rehab scenario it it doesn't look sexy but getting people to accelerate um, covers a lot of bases and if we kept things simple and and again you know (laughs) I, i assume that the caveman who I don't know if he pulled his hamstring, but the caveman who got injured basically ran himself back into shape. Otherwise, he'd die. You know, that, you know, if we fall back on that, then it gets pretty compelling to me. That's very, very, very well said. Um, And if we dovetail this into elite performance, you know, when I think of speed, I think of football. Uh, You recently had some some great content in your podcast of NFL players like, I think it was Tyreek Hill, you know, achieving max velocities around, what, 20.5, 21 miles an hour. Looks yeah. like blazing speed, but you mentioned that these athletes have the potential for closer to 26 miles an hour. Um, you know, what are the opportunities for these ultra elite to improve and gain that sort of 15%? Yeah, I mean, if again, you know, it's it's not it's sort of apples and oranges, and it isn't. But if you look at some of the top females, uh, they're getting up to 24, 25 miles per hour at top speed. Um, so 20.8 on the football field might seem impressive, but they're really not getting close to what I think they're capable of doing. And does that mean they're capable of doing on the football field? Not necessarily, you know, because there's so many other factors in terms of equipment, fatigue, and um, other people being in the way. So should we get them up to 22 miles per hour on the field or 23? That would be nice. Um, But what ends up happening is, during the week, uh, you know, they're practicing, they're doing all these different activities. Uh, everything gets watered down because if you have a two-hour practice, 
you're not going to be hitting high speeds. And I always tell people if, if you and I, Mark, got on a starting line and I said, we're racing to 30 yards, we're going to go all out, right? We're not going to leave anything in the tank. But if I said, we're going to do a marathon, I'm going to be walking off that line, quite honestly. I'm not going to be, uh, you know, pushing myself. Um, so, you know, knowing that I'm going into a two-hour practice and I got to go through all these drills that we've gone through before, I will, you know, down-regulate and I'm not going to push myself. So if the highest velocity I'm ever reaching in a game is 20.8 and I know that potentially I could go 26 on a track with spikes, that's, that's a big gap in my opinion. Now, you know, how does that get resolved? Well, it'd be nice if you could do something intense during the week um, that covers that. Does that mean you have to get on a track and sprint? No, but you should at least try to be accelerating um, maybe, you know, a little bit beyond that, that 20.8 or whatever it was, uh, velocity. Having said that, now you got to go back and you got to go to the off-season training and go, are they actually hitting high velocities in off-season? And I would argue that most of them probably aren't because, you know, you see what people do for training and it, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge speed ladder guy, but you see people go through speed ladders and their feet might be moving fast, but their bodies certainly aren't. And that's a problem. So if this is the base of your training that you're doing these little agility movements, moving your feet and tap dancing, that's great for Broadway, but it's not great. <laughs> it's, not, it's not great for the football field, right? Uh, at the highest level. So where does it come from? Where do you get this stimulus? Well, you know, sprinting is a good thing to do. If you've done it in the off season, uh, for an extended period of time, say, say you do it for 12 weeks, which is what they used to train for um, in the old days in the NFL. You'd have you go to the facility and train for 12 weeks. Now it's like three or five. Um, so if you're not putting in that time to sprint in the offseason, you should not be doing it in season now because you just haven't developed a base, uh, a reserve of speed. So it gets very difficult. You have to look at the entire season. And this is what I try to do when I work with teams is, Let's look at the big picture so that if we do these things properly in the off-season, when it comes to the in-season period, now you have more options to, to maintain qualities and maybe advance qualities. And that's, that's the biggest argument I put forward all the time. The more I'm um, involved in this line of research, the more I appreciate both the athletic history and the scientific history of interval training. Uh, you're right, it goes back at least 100 years. Uh, near the turn of the century, there were Finnish Olympians winning Olympic uh, middle distance gold medals, uh, training almost exclusively using short, hard intervals. Um, you mentioned Roger Bannister, who was a very busy medical student as he was uh, about to make the assault on the four-minute mile. And, and so, you know, he trained almost exclusively on his lunch hours uh, using basically 400-meter uh, repeats uh, around a track. And so if you look at the athletic history, you can see sort of interval training come in and out of flavor. Um, you know, sometimes it's periods of high-volume training. Sometimes it's periods of high-intensity training uh, come, come into play. The scientific history of interval training dates back to at least the 1950s with some German publications. First English language publication was in 1960. And then again, you see the same sort of thing where it comes into play uh, for a while. Um, obviously, Tabata-style interval training um, was based on a paper out of Japan in uh, the mid-1990s. And then it lays dormant for a little bit. And then probably since about 2005, there's been a, a massive upsurge as well. 
you know, I, I think what we've learned a lot over the last 10 or 15 years or so is number one, just the surprisingly time efficiency of interval exercise. So how low can you go? Uh, and the idea that if you're willing and able to do these very short, very hard bursts of exercise, uh, you can see adaptations with a very surprising small volume of exercise. That'd be point number one. And point number two is just the um, the wide variety of interval training protocols that have been applied to so many different individuals, including cardiovascular disease patients, people with type 2 diabetes, um, metabolic syndrome, and, and other conditions. And so I think we've learned a lot about the potential application of different types of interval training uh, to these uh, non-healthy individuals. Yeah, obviously it's a bit of a nebulous concept, this whole idea of overreaching and overtraining. It's clearly a real phenomenon, but how we assess and diagnose it is is quite challenging. Um, you know, I, I think things like resting heart rates can still be very effective. You know, I'm talking here uh, waking heart rates, um, if, if that's elevated compared to uh, normal. Uh, I think as a practical standpoint, that's probably one of the best markers. You know, I think you can do some hand waving around some markers like glutamine and things like that, but I, I don't think there's strong evidence uh, for, for that. You know, sometimes people say, well, uh, high intensity interval training, it's going to induce overtraining. Personally, I think overtraining is more related to total volume as opposed to intensity uh, per se. Um, you know, big picture, elite coaches and athletes are still generally going to recommend about an 80-20 split in terms of traditional uh, base aerobic, traditional endurance type training versus high intensity uh, intervals. Uh, but if you're certainly a time-pressed athlete, I think you want to maintain uh, intensity and, and cut back on, on volume. And I think in general, if an athlete is concerned or there's a risk for overtraining there, uh, cu cutting back on volume is, is a good strategy. You know, I I've worked with enough, I've had graduate students, I, you know, I had a graduate student who was an elite cyclist and, you know, she would go out for the 120 kilometer recovery ride after a very hard day <laughs> before. Sure. And I would say, why are you doing that? And, you know, she says, well, that's because everyone, everyone does that. But, uh, exactly. you know, and so I can talk phys physiology all day, of course, and give lots of physiology reasons why an athlete may not want to do that. But it comes back to this whole idea of if an athlete thinks uh, in their head that that's very, very important, then they should probably be be doing that. And, you know, there's there's classic there's a classic study out of Dave Costell's lab from Ball State, who is uh, a very good exercise physiologist and an elite master's uh, swim coach. And he had athletes one year because uh, swimmers obviously are you know notorious for very high volume volume training despite these very short events typically um, you know they may swim 50,000 meters a week uh, for for events and in the study they basically were taking national collegiate swimmers and one group did their normal training which was just enormous training volumes and the other group cut their overall training volume in half and at the end of the competitive season there was no real differences between the groups and and so it called into this called into question why athletes do so much of this volume based training you know clearly it's it's important in some regards uh you know cyclists will talk about time in the saddle and there's lots of other things aside from just muscle and cardiovascular physiology that's important you know maybe tendon remodeling maybe just the mental fortitude of spending that time in the bike uh, is important uh, for some events like rowing and swimming there's more feel for the water and so arguably that comes into play but as a general blanket statement i i think a number of endurance athletes do 
too much of just the high volume stuff just because uh, as opposed to a, a very systematic or legitimate reason for for uh, for doing it. Um, you know, most people are aware that you have quote unquote fast twitch and slow twitch fibers, but it's actually quite more extensive than that. You have probably five to six or maybe even more different fiber types and they exist on a spectrum from fast all the way to slow. And for decades, people have apparently thought there's some confusion about whether or not the fiber types can change with things like exercise. And while, while I get it, in fact, I, I have a, like a two and a half hour video on my website that you can watch if you really want to get into the details. It's, it's actually extremely clear why this confusion exists. But I, I don't understand why people in the field continue to report it. Well, I, let me back up. I know why they continue to report it because they don't actually spend the time to go read. But when you do, it is extremely clear uh, in fact, we've got dozens now of studies and basically every single study the last 30 years that's looked at this question has shown, yes, indeed, they change. In fact, none of them, not a single study with the proper techniques in the last 30 years have shown fibers don't change. So, like, I, 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 I'm just, this, this question needs to be over with and people need to start realizing or, you know, stop communicating or stop talking about this if you don't actually do it. Um, leave this up to the people who are the true experts uh, not not just the authorities. But they change is the point, and they change with exercise training, and they're very, very sensitive. So the, the type of exercise you do determines how the fiber types will change. Um, even recent papers came out in the last couple of years showing, uh, with a guy, a guy I'm collaborating with at Cal Poly Pomona, that simple things like your diet can change your fiber type. So they did a really nice study looking at a high-sugar, high-fat diet and showed significant changes in fiber type and how that actually could be blocked when you administer in resveratrol. So, like, everything matters. Your training matters. Your macronutrient matters. Your micronutrient, all this stuff matters. Um, carbon dioxide concentrations also have been recently showed to, to alter fiber type. So, like, physiology, there's no free passes in physiology. Everything matters. Absolutely. And yeah, as you mentioned, it's so interesting to see with people taking, you know, bigger boluses of uh, antioxidant supplements, etc., things like resveratrol <laughs> post-training and, and, and having that, that sort of real black and white uh, view of inflammation, good, bad, and then of course, uh, having a, you know, big impact on that adaptive response after training. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of uh, the difference between kind of optimizing training and the adaptation to training? Yeah, and then that's one thing, I, th I think I put this in the book, but one thing I've been harping on for a while is I like to think about um, either on the left-hand side, you're adapting, or on the right-hand side, you're optimizing. And it's very, very difficult to do these two at the same exact time. And so what I mean, inflammation is a very good example of that. Uh, you know, people think of inflammation as bad, and they think of other things as good or bad. But inflammation, you got, folks, you've got to realize, that is the direct signal for adaptation. Like if you don't have inflammation, you don't adapt. There is no change without stress. Like th this is key to it. Of course, the problem is if you are chronically inflamed or chronically underslept or chronically underhydrated, these have problems. But that doesn't mean we don't want short boluses or short bouts of extreme dehydration or extreme cold or extreme fatigue or whatever it's going to be, because that actually is what causes its adaptation. So. I mean, a classic example, if you were to do a bunch of hypertrophy training and trying to grow muscle mass, and then you took a bunch of antioxidants and anti-inflammatories, 
you would quite literally block the signal for growth, and so you would actually block the amount of hypertrophy you get. And well, if you're in a training phase and you're trying to specifically add muscle mass, and then you wonder why you can't add muscle, you're blocking the signal, and you haven't teased out. You should be spending time adapting right now, but you're trying to optimize your recovery, and you're trying to optimize whatever other thing you're trying to optimize. Well, then you're not going to be adapting. And so I, I think one one of the things we have to be particularly careful of, especially those that are into the biohackers or um, the business folks, the entrepreneurs, the people that want to sell you things on the internet, and I don't mean that completely nefariously uh, or pejoratively, because you know, a lot of my friends do that, self-included, right? Um, but <laughs> this is like we have to be careful of saying, well, if I'm always buying the thing that makes me feel better, perform better, function better, that's actually probably going to block me from getting better. And that's really hard for people to understand. Like if it takes you, you got to wake up in the morning and you have to have the optimal workout routine and then you have to do your perfect meditation and then you have to have your mushroom tea and your butter and your coffee. And these 28 steps have to go right with your nootropics so that you can have a normal productive day. Well, eventually all that optimization is going to compromise adaptation. And so you're going to become either reliant upon these things or you're going to block the ability to develop energy or nootropics endogenously whatever the, the case is. So I'm not saying don't do those things, but I am saying, well, let, let's have periods where we say, look, I'm going to optimize right now, and I'm going to make sure I've got this important deadline or this meet or this competition or whatever happens to be. I'm going to optimize. But then we've got to match that with the same period of saying, okay, well, now that that's over, I'm going to spend some time adapting. So I'm going to make sure that I can still uh, perform functionally. I'm going to challenge my body a little bit and when I do that I have to realize and recognize my performance is going to go down a little bit right now but it's probably better for me in the long run to get this little bout of adaptation you know there's been some work on uh, so I work in Jamie Zeitzer's circadian biology lab circadian biology is has uh, this is that what we're talking about when we're talking about blue light so we have a master clock in the brain. The master clock is looking for signals from the outside. And then it, once it gets those signals, it's affecting its own pattern of activity, uh, which is then influencing what we call clocks in cells and tissues throughout our body. And it's a way for uh, the brain to coordinate the, the timing of certain processes, whether it's cell cycle and repair, whether it's behavioral patterns, whether it's even your, even your sleep-wake cycle is a circadian rhythm. Light is the major synchronizer of that rhythm. And so what you want is you want to get, if you think about what, what would, if you were a hunter-gatherer, what would that look like? You'd get a lot of light during the day, and then you'd, the, the, when the sun went down, you'd have uh, some light by, their, by fire only, um, so it was dim and of a certain tone. And then you'd uh, go to bed and you'd have you know, a reasonable amount of darkness. It wouldn't necessarily need to be pitch black. But um, what we do now is we spend a lot of our time indoors. So the light intensity from outside is less than uh, it would be if it was if you were outside, much less. And then we also get more light in the evening when it would usually be dark. And so it's a very strange pattern of less light intensity during the day, but longer periods of light and then less darkness. So you also think there's, you know, our body's attuned to all sorts of signals that and there's a certain certain amount of darkness that we um, evolved with, right? So even though that would change over the seasons, um, and during darkness, we produce melatonin. And melatonin has broad effects in the body. Uh, major, it's a really powerful antioxidant and also something that will reinforce 
it uh, it reinforces what's called the dark period. So it, it helps to trans. It, once its light is coming into the eye, then this uh, or excuse me stops coming into the eye, then that will initiate this darkness chemical, and that tells the rest of the body that it's dark out, and then that helps to prime the body for certain dark dark time activities. Um, so it's not necessarily a sleep hormone because we know that there are nocturnal animals that have high melatonin as well. Um, so it's more of a timing hormone, although it does have slight soporific effects in humans, which means that it does, um, promote a little bit of sleepiness in humans. Um, and so anyway, when you're getting, um, bright light into the eye late at night, that can have a really serious impact on, um, your reaction time the next day, your mood, uh, just how well your body is functioning. And so while it's really difficult to stop people from using Instagram and their phones at night, there are sure. some things it's really hard, right? Because that's our time to relax and, and, and just kind of be by ourselves. And humans will always take a little time for themselves. And now, nowadays, that's how we do it, right? We're either watching television or we're playing you know, on some social media site because um, essentially we, we construct those social media sites to be of interest to us. For sure. Right? And so you get a scroll through your interest feed and it's captivating. So, you know, well, I think it's good to try to maintain some good hygiene around those products. So, all right, I'm going to turn it off at this time. Um, another way to do it is to then modify the light that's coming out of it For sure. so that it's less uh, of a negative influence. It's telling the brain, it's, there's a less strong of, um, strong of a signal that's saying to the brain, it's day when it's actually nighttime. And you will perform much, much better when you you know, implement some of those, uh, techniques into your life. And, um, uh, I interviewed my own mentor, Jamie Zeitzer and in that blog. So if you go to, you know, blog.danceplan.com, you look for Jamie Zeitzer. We taught, I give you, um, a way that you can actually go beyond night shift, which is the now built into the iOS systems on, on, on iPhone, which can convert, help your screen turn more yellow tone. Um, at night, and I can take it a, a step farther by something called color shift. So I give you very specific instructions about how to do that. But I, whenever, whenever I'm reading in bed, I, I do I use color shift, and that really helps to remove that blue light. Um, so I'm, I perform better the next day. And you've got to remind yourself, like, I'm going to perform better the next day. That's why I'm doing this because obviously it's you know more pleasant to look at a screen that has the full colors there. So you got to consider that too. For sure. No, that's great. I will definitely link to that in the show notes. And something that comes to mind is, uh, you know, a lot of our younger athletes are seeing a pattern now of, uh, you know, prescriptions for melatonin at younger ages and teens and, and university. I was just wondering your, your thoughts on that, if, if, if it's really more on the hygiene side that we should be focusing or if small doses of supplemental things like melatonin could be beneficial for certain populations or perhaps even in, in you know, teens and collegiate athletes. You know, it, it is... Uh, it's interesting. I mean, whenever you're taking a hormone, you want to be careful about whether or not your pattern of uh, taking a supplementary hormone is affecting your internal ability to produce it. And and yet, kind of like vitamin D, right? We take vitamin supplementary vitamin D, which is a hormone, because we're not getting enough. And so there could be some evidence there. I mean, there could be some you know rationale for actually taking small doses of exogenous melatonin in order to help really entrain that dark period. Um, but again, more than telling your brain that it's, uh, that, than helping you go to sleep, I mean, melatonin is a very, here's the problem with melatonin. It's a very, very weak soporific, as I mentioned before. So it's, it's not very powerful at making you sleepy, although it does a, a little bit. So in order to then 
sort of maximize the effects of the sleepiness of melatonin, people take extraordinarily high doses, milligram doses, three, three milligram, five milligrams, sometimes more. And that can ha create levels of melatonin in your blood that are, you know, 165 times higher than what you would naturally see. Okay, is that necessarily a problem? You know, I, I just don't, I'm not one who wants to run necessarily a, a, a experiment like that in a young person. For sure. Um, you know, so if you're going to be taking melatonin, you know, one way to do it would be to take it 0.3 milligrams, very small dose. It's not going to make you sleepy, but it is going to give your brain it's a, that, uh, a signal that it's dark out, even if you have, it's kind of the equivalent of wearing blue, blue light blocking glasses. Awesome. And you'd want to... Yeah, and you'd want to take that when you're, uh, you know, when you're going to bed. Or, or excuse me, um, when the sun is going down. So there's a couple ways you could do it, right? You could try to mimic uh, what's happening in kind of your natural cycle outside, light, light, dark cycle, or you could make it a rule of saying, I'm going to just take this small amount, two and a half, you know, two hours before bed, and set an alarm, and 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 then do it that way. And that's going to prevent, help prevent some of the shifting um, of your circadian rhythm. That can happen when you're looking at when you have inadequate light during the day and then too much light right before bed. So that's one strategy. The other strategy is to wear glasses. Um, and so I, that's what I tend to do is to put on glasses. I have an alarm that goes off. I put on my glasses two hours before bed. They're blue light filtering glasses. And, um, you know, I think in order to be healthy in our world, you got to be a little weird. I love what you said right there. It's really, and I love that you said symptoms because that's a good place to start actually. And, the, and, the, and this is why I'm starting there. Often we are taught, even in a health basis, but also from a Western standpoint, that central nervous system signaling, whether it be headaches, you know, nausea, you know, and gut responses, a sour stomach, you know, general feelings of fatigue, uh, mood changes, is these are things to ignore and only to pay attention to when they're so far along that we're now in a state, because everything's on a spectrum, we're in a state of a disease or disorder. When actually they're signaling from the central nervous system about to return to resiliency, because the brain is the most complex system in the known universe, but it's the most complex survival system. And so it sparks off information through all the other systems, all 11 other systems that it utilizes and manages to teach us how to get back to resiliency. But we learn to ignore them. And so when we think about just general mood, general fatigue states, our content of thought and the mind and brain are two different things. Thought is an outgrowth of the mind uh, of the brain and it's actually a tool um we're still a lot we don't know but that's generally what we're seeing it has to do with survival connection to other people and then a redundancy in the system of learning and then application of learning but when we look at symptoms they're actually a sign how to remove to go back to resiliency hydration's a sign you know uh, being tired and underrested is a sign negative thinking is a sign but we're not taught to use those and move back to resiliency. And I suppose that gets to the art of, of coaching or even in, in medicine when, you know, pushing athletes towards that, that edge and, and, and getting into that sort of overreaching without, you know, pushing them over the edge into overtraining. So are there, are there certain cues or certain collection of patterns of symptoms that, that for yourself would be uh, something that coaches or, or docs working for teams can start to uh, really use as, as a, as a metric to see when, when athletes are really pushing, pushing things too hard? 
Let's go with the let's go with the the three that we're all born with, and we only learn really kind of two. Um, you know, let's go with some of the strongest survival mechanisms that we have that that spark off, and that would be fight or flight. And then we'll talk about the third that no one ever really kind of learns, but uh, uh, is is really essential. So if we go fight or flight. Anxiety in any pattern, in whether we talk about an educational environment, a sport environment, a business environment, a health environment. We have to pay attention to that. That's a quick cue because it reduces so much of our brain's capacity to take information, see pattern recognition, and then learn. So if we're identifying for coaches, coaches are identifying anxiety. If we go old school, they would say, you know, we want to flood them. We want to overwhelm them. But the problem is now you extend out that learning. But you also have a chance of injury because of a fear response impact of other areas like motor coordination, strength and power output, pattern recognition. So you may be sending someone back into a situation that might be dangerous because they can't observe it properly and react properly. And then looking at what's the ultimate goal to improve resiliency. So just seeing someone anxious should be a cue that we have to adjust to the individual and find ways to reduce that anxiety so they can adapt. And that's just fundamental evolutionary but we often ignore it we see it as a weakness yep we drive that person harder and it's about managing that emotion because for some reason the brain on the secondary processing sees a threat you know the same thing is withdrawing so the fight or flight someone withdrawing and not leaning in scaffolding the task so it seems more bite-sized and they can manage the emotion more evenly thus they will advance their learning quicker and establish a much better encoding in the memory process of being able to see the pattern and then do it again repeatedly. And then the last one no one ever talks about, but it's evolutionary in our autonomic nervous system, which is shutdown, which is gut responses, vomiting, nausea, sour stomach. In my work in concussion, um, you know, often people are still pushing through that point. And that's not a sign of a good workout. It's not a good sign in a concussion. It's not a good sign in any kind of moving towards resiliency. When we throw up, it's the last bastion of one of the earliest defenses we have when we're born. We're in the first six months of birth, we don't have fight or flight. We have shutdown, which is in the deepest part of the amphibian brain. That's why with you know sudden infant death syndrome, it's not about positioning. Now, yes, that's what we teach the public. You put the baby on its back. But it's because if the baby sleeps on its stomach, it doesn't have fight or flight. So it starts to suffocate. It can't flip over. We never lose that shutdown, which is gut related. And so anytime we see athletes that are starting to have gut reactions, you've overdosed. Gotcha. You've overdosed. And then we have to look at recovery curves that are going to be longer for that individual. And when you speak to the um, you know that fight or flight response and the, even the, the gut connection, can you can you speak to the um, the importance of you know the vagus nerve and how important that is in terms of uh, you yeah. know, recovery resiliency? This whole piece, whether it's what we eat or, or sleep, etc. Yeah, it, it's something when I use this example from my work with the elite military, but I think it's one everyone can relate to. If we think about when we see military or tactical performers, what do we protect most? They have a helmet on. Now, again, it has its limitations. It does. But you also can you also protect the core of the body. Reasonable. Internal organs. But really what you're protecting is the central nervous system, which is the brain, the optic nerve and retina, and 
you know, the spinal cord. And then what connects that to the rest of the body is the vagus nerve, the longest 10th cranial nerve in our body. And so it affects the brain, the heart, and the stomach. So it's constantly giving information every millisecond through that. So gut reactions. So when we talk about gut instincts, that's vagus nerve response through the gut moving with blood and then working with neurotransmitters. So the vagus nerve is critical um, to emotional responses, heart synchronizing with the brain, which has to do with energy output, as well as bringing glucose and bringing vitamins and minerals and neurotransmitters. And then with the gut, having a proper gut biome so the neurotransmitters function properly and then get to the brain. Brain doesn't store very many neurotransmitters. So the vagus nerve really is effective in making sure the center of our body, which we protect with gear, is very much sampling proper information. If that starts to drop or go off, then we're going to have an out, you know, an outcome of inabilities, whether it be through vision, movement, uh, whether it be you know an understanding a pattern in front of us, properly socially engaging and seeing people's face properly, so we're going to engage with minimal encouragers or proper social connections or teamwork. So the vagus nerve, what we're learning about it, it is incredibly powerful for our health and well-being. And that's why some of the things we've learned in our life have an effect is because the impact of vagus nerve, like sleep, like hydration, like emotional management. It affects the vagus nerve. Puyol is such a fascinating character. So he, he was not a prodigy. I mean, you know, a lot of these captains, it's fascinating. Some of them were stars, but most of them really were average athletes and really had to struggle to to break into the elite ranks. And I mean, he didn't come to Barcelona's um, youth academy until he was 17. And even then, you know, he really had to fight to get to get in. And, you know, at one point they had basically given up on him and they were going to sell him to Malaga, you know, a, a kind of low-level Spanish team. And he just refused to go. So I'm not leaving because he was born in, in uh, Catalonia and he was, uh, you know, a real fan and supporter of the team, didn't want to leave. So, you know, Puyol was just, they didn't know what to do with him. First of all, he, he kind of looked strange. He had his long, curly hair, and he, and he you know, kind of looked a little bit like a caveman, and he played in this kind of incredibly dogged style, even though he wasn't that fast and wasn't very clever with the ball. Um, they didn't really know what to do with him, and they had tried him at different positions. They didn't think he had the speed to play wide on defense. Um, and, and, you know, so he got his big break in 2000 when, uh, Barcelona played this incredibly tense, famous game. Uh, it was the first time they played Real Madrid after Luis Figo, who had been at Barcelona, had transferred to Real Madrid, which was a huge scandal because those teams hate each other. Sure. So the coach, the coach at the time, decided that that they would um, they needed someone to mark Figo, and you know everyone thought it would be one of the regular starters, but um, the coach decided to try Puyol because they knew he was dogged and relentless and cared desperately that uh, about winning the game. So they put him in, and and it was just this remarkable match. I mean, if you go back on YouTube and watch it, I mean, the fans were screaming of hatred, you know, for Figo, and Puyol just played out of his mind and just completely shut. Figo down in, in humiliating fashion, and they won the game. And from that moment, I mean, everything just changed. I mean, he became kind of a, a hero in, in Spain, but he, um, you know, he he became the rock of that defense, and he played central 
defense, you know, but he was such a weird guy because he was so humble and he, he wasn't talented. He just was all grunting effort and he cleaned up all of their mistakes and, uh, you know, he took shots to the face and, you know, he, he would, you know, have head collisions, you know, heading, heading the ball and he'd go over and they would staple his, you know, cuts closed and he would run back in. I mean, he was just a complete uh, picture of, of slobbering effort, you know, on a team that was very technical and um, a little fragile. And you know, he just, he was the kind of leader, the same kind of leader as Russell. I mean, he just, he was completely devoted to the goals of the team and whatever needed to be done. And he rode his teammates when they were slacking. He never let up. And, uh, you know, he was, he was elected captain, um, by his teammates and in typical style, this is very typical of the captains. He, uh, it was unanimous that he should be the captain, but the only dissenting vote was his because he thought <laughs> That's great. it was unethical to vote for other people. So it kind of gives you a little window into the character of these captains. Yeah, it's amazing as well because, you know, like you mentioned, he was sort of quiet on the in public, but amongst his team and on the pitch, I mean, the guy just wouldn't stop uh, chattering and, and talking, right? Yeah, that's one of the things that I think a lot of things surprised me about these captains. But I think one of the biggest surprises was uh, when I, I talked to all of them, you know, who were alive and asked them about their approach to communication. And, you know, they did not give speeches. Everybody thinks that, you know, a captain or a leader needs to stand up in front of the group and, and give a rousing speech and say inspirational things. They absolutely did not do that. Some of them like Yogi Berra, I mean, was probably incapable of doing something like that because he just wasn't, you know, wasn't that kind of person. But, um, a lot of them said they purposely avoided it. They just never addressed their teammates, but what they did was fascinating. They, they, I call it practical communication. I think that's the best way to explain it. I mean, they, they talked within the context of the team and during games, they talk constantly and they circulated widely among the team and they, you know, some of them never shut up on the pitch. I mean, or or during the, on the court, I mean, they, they, they really spoke um, constantly and, you know, but, but it wasn't, it wasn't platitudes. I mean, it was really just like talking about practical things as they were happening. And it was this constant form of communication and making corrections in the moment. And that was something that they all, uh, they all had. And, and it kind of runs against our, our ideas of how leaders are supposed to communicate. That's it for this edition of Rewind. I hope you enjoyed the show today, ladies and gents. I do really love putting together these Rewind episodes, re-listening to past interviews, hearing all the great advice, the insights, the opinions. So hopefully you enjoyed it as well. And hopefully these insights can really help to better inform your practice. Thanks again for tuning in. If you want links to the full episodes from the clips you heard here, then please check out the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions about today's episode, then definitely give us a shout out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Always love the questions, comments, and of course, connecting with the listeners. Fantastic. Thanks again, and see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.